Park. It's an 87th Precinct side pod. And I am joined for this by my first ever returning guest to the podcast, which is my brother, Gary Abbott. Hello. Gary earned his place on our first podcast by virtue of his being a science fiction fantasy author himself. Yeah. So would you like to tell the listening millions about your books again so they can buy them twice? Of course. Yeah. I mean, if they haven't already, and then this hopefully time will be the charm. Yes. So my books are available on Amazon.co.uk and other countries too. I think most of them. Just search for Gary Abbott, two R's, two B's, two T's. My last book was called Transported. I have a short story collection called The Dimension Scales and Other Stories. And I have a space opera style novel called The Great Connection, Worlds in Waiting. Um, And Transported is kind of comedy sci-fi, I should say. And no boring moon treks. Well, we'll get on to boring moon treks. Uh, I mean moon treks in a minute. Okay. We are looking again at another one of Evan Hunter's juvenile science fiction stories from the Winston science fiction range. We previously looked at Danger Dinosaurs, mm-hmm. which was about danger and dinosaurs. And now we are taking a rocket to Luna. We're doing these to sort of put in a bit of extra context about where Ed McBain came from as a writer. So this is early days for him. And we'll take you now to space as it was seen through the eyes of a 20-something-odd-year-old in 1953. So you would have been 20... 27. All right, okay. Rocket to Luna is the name of the book. It was credited to Richard Marston, who now we know as Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, published by the John C. Winston Company as part of the Winston Science Fiction range, which ran from 52 to 61, and it was also published in the UK a year later in Hutchinson edition and just as an interesting point here for well interesting for me anyway where I work has a big science fiction archive and yesterday I visited the special collections and archives section and looked at an actual copy of the British edition British British first edition of the book because we've both got this now but only as Kindles which is the only way you can get it in a new format anyway so I went and actually had a look at the book which didn't teach me any more than reading it does, but it was nice to see the actual printing of the end paper illustration, which we'll get onto in a bit, and just well smell it. So, is it just just this story yeah. on its own in its own release? Yeah, it doesn't feel. It's hard to tell on a Kindle edition that it would be kind of big enough to to almost print. It's it quite as a large novel. print, but yeah. it is. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it makes it a, seems substantial. It's it's a it would be a big book for kids. Yeah, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I had some kids Star Trek style novelizations that were aimed at a younger children type of audience. Very big print and lots of spaces between the lines. Makes yeah. you feel like you're reading a big book, but probably isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Although it is a lot longer than it needs to be. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. So, for a little bit more information on the range, anyway, that this was included in. So, there was three Evan Hunter books in this range. One was Find the Feathered Serpent... One was Danger Dinosaurs, and the other was Rocket to Luna. So that other authors in that range included people like Arthur C. Clarke, Lester Del Rey, Paul Anderson, Jack Vance. I mean, these are all big names mm. in, in science fiction and fantasy writing anyway. Definitely. So they it was attracting really good authors to it. And Evan Hunter, which I s- say that to sound sarcastic, but he 
he was a, a new writer in a way. He'd had two or three years of being a professional writer, getting stuff published by this point. He's still finding his voice. He's trying all these different markets. And I think, as perhaps was suggested on the Danger Dinosaur pod, he hasn't quite got it right yet. Hmm. But it's an interesting thing anyway. Uh, the best thing, I think, about all of these books is they've got this amazing illustration in them of robots shooting lasers out of their face and crashing buildings down and and some yeah. many-armed monsters operating machines. It's a really, really, really good um, illustration. It looks terribly exciting, doesn't it? I'd like to read some of the books that have these things in it. Well, yeah, I mean, they're all quite generic. UFOs and rockets taking off and it's... people with space suits on and yeah. fish. I think it was quite normal at the time for science fiction books, um, you know, to have covers that looked exciting but didn't necessarily bear any resemblance to the story inside. I think that's quite a, that was quite a common practice anyway, possibly yeah. because of coming out of collections and magazines that just needed to sell the um, the genre. Yeah, that made it more exciting. They were to draw you in. It was actually the illustration for the for these books was done by Alex Schomburg, who was a very well thought of illustrator for pulps and comics, particularly timely comics, which eventually becomes Marvel comics. Ah, there is a nice author introduction, and of course he's writing as Richard Marston, so he's 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 written this intro that sort of says Richard Marston doesn't call any one part of the country home. The author's wanderlust has led him to every corner of the United States, and he intends to see Canada, Mexico, Europe, Asia, and Africa before settling down. As far as I can tell, I don't think McBain had wandered very far from New York at this point. I mean, he'd been overseas for his time in the Navy, but I don't think he'd he'd done every corner of the United States. I don't know. I might be wrong. Mm. It does show that early on, though, he's trying to... um, Because doesn't he do... He did the same with Ed McBain, didn't he, as a... He, he likes to create his alter to keep his alter ego kind of um, a bit mysterious and also a bit uh, and build it up a bit. Yeah, so yeah. you know he did for a while anyway. Yeah. The the bio for for Mister Marston it says the three stage rocket that Mister Marston writes about in Rocket to Luna was discussed with his boyhood friends during bygone Fourth of July celebrations. <laughs> Plans had even been made to equip a tin can with firecrackers to test the theory, but the youngsters never got around to it. Um, so it was a bit of interesting hyperbole. I'd his... love to know how much of that is, is him and how much of that is just just a character in itself. I mean, because it would have been on... Every, I mean, presumably, I'm guessing, that the idea of visiting the moon would have been... Every young boy's kind of... Along with cowboys and things would have been what they, they talked about and what they played. So it's, you know, well, when he was a kid, which was essentially the 1930s and 40s, mm-hmm. there was lots of sci-fi around, there was lots of westerns, there was lots of these adventure things. So it was all part and parcel of, of what was, everyone was consuming. When was Sputnik? Well, we'll get to the, okay. s- the space things in yeah. a second. Now, when we get through this, obviously we'll give our opinion of the, of the book. I did find a review of it from the period. Oh. So in the New York Times, someone called Villiers Gerson which is a great name, in the 28th of June edition, 1953, in their section, for younger readers, reviewed it. For Rocket to Luna, Richard Marston has invented completely unbelievable characters. (laughs) Ted Baker, in attempting a good deed, finds himself taken on the first trip to the moon. Except for the expedition's leader, the personnel bicker so violently that the boy is ostracised. 
The task of landing on the moon falls to him. After wrecking it, he must save his companions. And they had nothing else to say about it. Oh, right. Is that it? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So the only the only actual um, critique within that is what they said about the characters. Yeah. The unbelievable characters. Well, uh, yeah. So, I mean, this is, it is a kid's book. Well, yeah. And just to put it into, into broader context for Evan Hunter himself, he had been writing for a little while. And in terms of his science fiction output that he'd done already at this point... He'd released a thing called Reaching for the Moon in 1951, which was his first published short story, okay. first paid short story. So he'd done something along these lines before. Yeah. He'd, the book Find the Feathered Serpent had come out, and then short stories called The Tinkerer, Welcome Martians, Silent Partner, Small Fry, and A Planet Named Joe were okay. all science fiction things he'd written up to this That's, point. They all sound very interesting. They do. And they're all in those very colourful sci-fi pulp magazines. Mm those short stories anyway. I think that's what took me by surprise with this story was that expecting some colourful sci-fi pulp kind of story, we have a much more technical science fiction story, don't we? And how accurate that technical stuff is, we don't no, really yeah. know, do we? So I, I, Yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's attempting to be what a strain of entertainment, much like the, um, the Martian um, was to become many decades later. Well, I've I, never seen that, so I don't know. Well, oh, oh, well, if you watch it, you'll see what I mean. It's a, it's a story about their science. They really got the science bit of the science fiction, and the fiction bit is, is kind of on the back burner, really. Okay. You know, that's that. It's about obviously we haven't been to Mars, but that's about someone going to Mars, it going wrong, and how they survive it, and how they get off. And at this point, we hadn't been to the moon, so there yeah. you go. There's an equivalent. It is very equivalent. I, I, I didn't know you hadn't seen that. It, it's definitely something worth watching if you're going to draw a comparison that's that's the, the it will be born in mind so gary give me a broad overview of your feelings about this book then i think it's really interesting in the sense that it, he was writing it before the moon landings i yeah. think it almost he did the same thing with the danger dinosaurs didn't he he's also using it as a vehicle for facts i think he's trying to tick some children's publishing type of um, boxes there that he's also yeah. delivering some kind of educative educational kind of um, facts and figures along the way which would have been to the best of his knowledge at the time I guess to the best of anyone well, he does knowledge. acknowledge where he got his sources yes. from didn't one he? of them so- being the illustrious Arthur C. Clarke yeah, so he says, My thanks, too, to Arthur C. Clarke, who graciously answered several tricky questions about the moon. Mm. So where do you go for, for your... F- I mean, I don't know what Arthur C. Clarke did apart from being a science fiction author, but he's gone to another fiction author to get his facts. Yeah. So that's always good. Um, hey, well- Arthur, what's the moon? <laughs> tricky. You get the feeling that he did with this what he did with the cops when he started writing the 87th Precinct thing, which was he needed to keep checking things. He probably bugged Arthur C. Clarke yeah. over and over again as someone who would, as an established science fiction writer. He does also say he's grateful to and has relied upon figures taken from something called Man Will Conquer Space Soon, which is a symposium published in Collier's magazine in um, March 22nd, 1952. And having a very, very quick look on Wikipedia, that apparently was a collection of articles about how we're going to get to the moon and what, what... So, as I say, it must have been in circulation. And obviously, from a science fiction point of view, you go, you know, to George Melier's kind of first ever science fiction film, isn't it? It's credited yeah. as being the, the rocket to the moon and things. It's It's proper like the dinosaurs and time travel it's real science fiction kind of 
uh, meet, isn't it? It's, it's well, the moon seemed to be coming to be becoming a more reasonable target. Yeah. Following the Second World War, so the space race is ostensibly born out of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Because that's where all the rocket scientists suddenly become very, very important. Yeah. And that's when America nicks the rocket sciences, scientists from Nazi Germany, like Werner von Braun, mm. take them to the US and puts them into peacetime development of rockets into space. Yeah. And at the mean, at the same time, during the meanwhile, mm. which isn't a phrase, <laughs> the Russians are doing the same thing. And for a little while, doing better than the US, yeah. I think. And they got the they got the first cosmonaut, didn't they? They got the well, first. If I'm getting my terminology right, the first person in space or out of our atmosphere. I mean, I'm not guessing. by the time he'd written this book, 1953. So he yeah. must have been writing it, you know, through 52, probably yeah. 53. That not much had happened in space okay. in reality. 1946, we got our first pictures of Earth from space, so they'd sent something up that had managed to to capture images of Earth. Okay. 49. The United States had gone really technical by just strapping two big rockets together okay. to make a, a two-stage rocket, so you get that extra boost into space. 1951, the Russians send up the first two dogs in space. Right. Des- that, um, Desik and Sizgen. Oh. Which ones are you going hero? That's a song by Blur. Oh, yeah, that's to do with the things that got sent to space. That sounds Japanese to me. Yeah, oh, God, I'll look that up. You look that up. Uh, 1952... This is a good one, though. Werner von Braun talks about an enormous lunar lander, and he was going to send three of them, each carrying a crew of 50 men, for a six-week expedition on the moon in 1977. Right. So he'd come up with this design in 1952 for this ludicrously outsized... Well, turns out they were going to end up being the size of actual rockets later. But at the time, it's like, we're sending three of these behemoths into space to land on the moon in 1977. Right. So that didn't happen anyway. Then we publish uh, Rocket to Luna, and that's what's happened to that point in space anyway. Then just for a quick rundown for everyone of what was happening after that, 1957, we have the first intercontinental ballistic missile, first artificial satellite, which is Sputnik, Okay. first dog in orbit, which was Laika. Ah, now Laika come home. I'm getting that mixed up with you. You go and hero. Like I come home, something to do with the gorillas. I've got some. There's some. You've got Al- some sort of Damon Albarn blurring weird, going yeah, on. Blurring. The, <sighs> like I come home is a thing to do that Albarn's got something to do with, and that, and I've got that mixed I'll up. I'll trust you on that one. Okay. okay. You, first US satellite doesn't go up till 1958, and then it's a sort of ping ponging between the Russians and and the Americans as to what's happening in space at any one time, really. Obviously, the first human space flight was by Yuri Gagarin. The first controlled human space flight was by Alan Shepard. first woman in space was in 1963, and that was a, a Russian called Valentina Tereshkova. Okay. And the Russians did the first soft landing on the moon, which means they, they, they put something, put on, something on the moon and it didn't But it never, never didn't turn, collapse, it didn't have but it didn't have anyone in it. Yeah. it. And the first humans on the moon were coming up to the big anniversary of that. It was 1969 in July. Ah, so we're well before that here. There's an br- interesting opening chapter in this called First Stop, mm. where before the story starts, he starts speculating about why we're going to the moon. So and he tells us that the story is set 30 years in the future. The date is 1983, and man is attempting his first uh, landing on the moon. Yeah, he's really overshot a bit, hasn't he? And it's interesting, you, you know, a lot of the time with uh, uh, imagined futures, 
you know we were used to science fiction from um the the pre-digital age thinking that we'd all have rocket cars and all these things or maybe yeah. not always getting the but normally being a bit ahead of itself really rather than behind it but it, he's really kind of gone a bit too far he's been a bit generous there hasn't he and uh well, he says, the sons of today will be the men who land on the moon. Hmm. And their sons, the planets and the stars. So he's got both of those wrong. Because the astronauts who landed on, on the moon in 1969, they, you know, they, would have been they not... were 39, 38 years old. So they would be the same so, age as him. Well, a little bit younger, yeah, but not, not, not far yeah. off, really. And none of their and sons, none of their sons have gone planets. any further. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's they've... not like we've got to the moon, set up there, and used it as a staging post. And even although... if we had the leap of the distance between the moon and everywhere else, it's <laughs> a bit ridiculous. It, it would be helpful to not have to get out of the Earth's atmosphere, but I still don't think it's going to solve the the massive distances. You know, no. And it's been in the news this week because uh, Donald Trump's been banging on about why why are we going to the moon again? Should we go to Mars? So right. just shut up, you fatuous ninny. <laughs> Anyway, let's get him into the book because we're okay. we're well in. So, so we're covering that that first chapter. Give, give us a, give us a little bit of a, a an overview then. So, Ted Baker is a name that's been mentioned, and not the clothes right. and perfume no, person. I kept on thinking for ages, thinking Ted Baker. I know him. Has he used this name in the eighty seventh precinct? Is it someone? Return? No, it's because he's something to do. Is a clothing brand. So he's the main. He's the rookie, isn't he? As far as I'm, I'm, I'm having to remember because we read this a little while ago. He's the rookie at some kind of a space school. He's yeah. in the last year where he has to go and do um, a trip up to the space station. So we're living in a world the 1983. There's a there's an effective space station and they're using yeah. that as a staging post to get to the moon. Which that was pretty good. He's, yeah, he's a not, bit off with not. that, but yeah, they, they 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 do regular trips up to the space station. They do rotations of tours, which is quite. You know, yeah. on the, that on the money. However, it seems a bit come up casual. So Ted Baker is getting preparing for his first trip into space in a world where there's no one has ever been to the moon, but where they regularly go up to the space station. And he is a rookie. He's in his third year, and he's he's kind of turned up and he's all excited because he's about to go up in the um, SS something. The SS something yeah. snappy title. Yeah, it's all a bit Air Force military in this, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas space and NASA tends to be seen as a a non-armed forces type thing whereas this it's very much the air force from where the pilots would have come yeah. which is reasonable because a lot of pilots came out the air force into nasa yeah and this is it and it's the space that's it it is the space academy i could have guessed that really <laughs> and he's basically just grabbing a bit of food and things in the canteen before he gets called to kind of get on your get on the ship my favorite thing is on page one page one of the actual story that uh evan hunter says trucks were scooting around like bewildered beetles mm. then he says men in overalls were hurrying around like marauder ants and then there was lots of men and vehicles like hungry insects yeah like he's stuck with he's picked drawn one thing to, and he's gonna to, stick with that yeah drawn to a fallen morsel of food but yeah. then that that's that you'd think that it was that was gonna have something to do with anything else but no that's just a it just goes down that but i like it these are the bits where i like his writing can carry across what is basically a man waiting for someone to say it's time to board now. Yeah, <clears throat> it's time to get on 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 board, and uh, uh, because there's not really much else to it. He's trying to get across to you the excitement, the the buzz, and the activity of a of a rocket launch. But because I don't think he's got the frame, because like you say, he doesn't know about NASA because it doesn't exist yet, and he hasn't got the framework of how it all looks and feels that we we now know. It does feel a bit like he's when waiting did to NASA get... come into being? I you don't say know. that. I don't know, but he, he um, 
it feels a bit more like he's about to get a you know a red eye from to, to the west coast or something rather than a spaceship to into space <laughs> a spaceship into space you know even though he does go into a lot of detail oh, yeah. NASA, about... NASA, sorry to interrupt there, Gary. NASA didn't actually exist then, but it, uh, there was an agency before then called NACA. <laughs> NACA. I think they had a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he uses it, like I said, as a, you know, the, these early stages and a lot of the book as a vehicle for facts. But he's saying that, he's gonna, that they send 17-year-olds into space out mm. of the academy. Well, it is just like for a, st- a tour of duty, isn't it? it is, he's going to go up there and do some experiments. And... Well, these are books for kids. He's not likely to say, here's your hero. It's it's a middle-aged man who's spent years and years getting a degree in aeronaut- yeah. you know, in physics and uh, experience in aeronautics. So he quite soon... Yeah, I mean, he is... He is, um, he is naive, and he's, they're trying to show that he is um, he's bubbling with excitement, but he's also yes. not wanting to show it because he's... And he bumps into his friend. His friend... And this is the moment is described by Evan Hunter as he says, Ted's eyebrows climbed <laughs> onto his forehead, <laughs> scuttled right up inches above that's, his. That's terrifying, really. If you took imagine that. every time you met your friend, your eyebrows <laughs> ran away. <laughs> it, yeah, it's uh, quite a, an expression. Uh, and this is Jack, who um, who is an older. So he meets his friend Jack, who is an older. Yeah, um, a year ahead of him. Yeah, ahead. So he's been he's graduated, doesn't he? Um, I think, or he's in. Yeah, I think he's graduated, but he's now like fully fledged in the space, whatever it is. Um, and he calls him boy all the time, and he's very yeah, very condescending. Yeah, it reminds me actually. Thinking of that, that reminds me of um, the detective in the um, who recently been made a detective. Is it Gennaro? No, not. Oh yeah, yeah, Dick, Dick, Gennaro, Dick Gennaro. Who wants to call everyone boy because even older people because he's now feels because he's now a them. rank above them. But this, yeah. the, he's he's he is saying straight up front with this Jack character that he's like. He calls him boy, even though they know each other. He knows his name. Yeah. But Jack's all kind of like he's a bit um, starry-eyed about him, isn't he? Because he's he's the older boy. But I like it that Ted Ted Baker's all very goody-goody, and he's like, "We must follow the manual to the letter." And there's a bit where he says Jack laughed, and there was something harsh in his laughter, which Ted hadn't noticed at the academy. Forget the manual, he said. The manual is for Earth lovers. <laughs> it's like, well, I hope that doesn't come back to haunt you. Yeah. It, yeah. There's a good there's a good bit of signposting that Jack might be might be a little bit of the baddie. He's a bit of a prat, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, um, and he keeps on trying to making Ted know that he's the older, more experienced boy, and that he's his superior in some ways. But then, in keeping, as you do when you for the first ever time your species is about to kind of go to the first celestial body yeah. it's ever visited, you know. Ted finds out by Jack going, nah, I'm just kidding with you, when he's being a bit funny with him. I, I'm just being a bit funny because I'm going to the moon. <laughs> and, he's, and he just tells him, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get the space station on the next ship, but we're going to go on to the moon. So let's spool forward a little bit because yeah. there's quite a lot about the actual process of them getting a ship to the space station. And then there's, there's quite a yes. lot of scenes of people eating in various locations and the crew getting together. But when they get on the space station and they're there and... and Ted and Jack are knocking about a bit with some of the people who are going to be on the crew of the spaceship to the moon. Yeah, so we should be clear, Ted's not going to the moon. Ted's not going to the Ted moon. He's just they're going on the, the same ship because they're going to go and do the stopover at the space station, but they were, Jack's lot are going to go from there to the moon, aren't they? Yeah. So when they are all at the space station after they kind of meet in transit, they're just there, um, just kind of... Uh, Hanging about. Chewing the fat. Looking through windows. Yeah. 
which they're doing. In order for the plot to progress, you basically need to get Jack out of the equation and get Ted accidentally onto the rocket. What do you do? Do you have an amazing incident? Do you have a fight between them? Do you have a do you have a, uh, a terrible tragedy occur to Jack that means he can't go? Or do you have him leaning down to pick up his suitcases and breaking his collarbone while he does so? Oh yeah, I was trying to remember. I was quick, quickly flicking through thinking that they do end up getting in a fight, don't they? Yeah. But what, what's the reason? And it's because... Um, because... Ted Baker is such a goody two-shoes, he doesn't want to jeopardise the, the moonshot by Jack going on yeah. board and being an ineffective member of crew. Jack's like, you're not messing this up for me. I might have a broken collarbone, but, yeah. um, but I'll be all right. And so that causes the fight. But breaking a collarbone is just like the most stupid break you can have. Well, you should know. I, I, I do know. I broke my collarbone and they didn't let me go to the moon. They didn't? No. No. But I you- broke my collarbone by falling over in first quarry in uh, in Ayton in near Scarborough in North Yorkshire in England one of several breaks yeah you got um, newspaper coverage for it as I remember it'd be an accident prune or no that was when I broke my arm yeah so it was a there was a two-tiered thing you got you got a newspaper article for being having so many injuries and stuff for some reason that was newsworthy in, in no it wasn't there was one newspaper article yeah. and it was when I got them people to sign my cast oh, and give me charity and give me like 10p or whatever and oh. we gave that to the hospital for charity and it said accident prone boy yeah. raises money f- for charity and you got it out of the clipping out of a drawer once when you were a small boy yeah. and you read it out and called it accident prune said, what's an accident prune <laughs> which has become a family thing and now I am the accident prune yeah. yeah so I broke my collarbone they didn't let me go to the moon I broke my arm didn't let oh, me go to go. Mars yeah, yeah. I smashed my front teeth out. They didn't let me orbit around the sun, like in the film Sunshine. I mean, Ted becomes very righteous here, and and quite you know, Jack is saying, "I'm I'm I'm going to go," and Ted is saying, "Well, you really shouldn't. You should at least tell someone because you know you you." you there's a lot about the pressures of kind of um, the, the, the blast, the, the rocket blast, isn't there, about the G's forces that, that you have to pull. I mean, we've skipped about four chapters to get here because they spend so much time talking about the actual break in the atmosphere, the kind of falling a bit unconscious, the waking up, the weightlessness. You go through all that. And lots of people... Well, asking questions. Yeah, lots of people asking stupid questions. If you ask the questions people asked in this book, you would not be on a moon no. mission. There are people kind of going, I know this sounds awful daft for me to ask this, but uh, what's a moon? Yeah. Um, well, it's like the geologist is obviously asking loads of questions about the rocket because he's a geologist. He's a ge- yeah. Which is fine in, in terms of delivering the information to the audience, but in terms of the reality of the yeah, world... It's they like- still would have clued themselves up a bit before getting on, wouldn't they? Yeah. They would have gone through... I mean, scientists obviously make up a huge amount of the kind of... Well, nearly all people who get sent into space are going to be, and are going to be scientists of some kind, almost all. Yeah. But those that are have to go through just the same training as the rest of the... They don't just, they're yeah. not just like passengers without any... Although, again, we're in a week where the International Space Station has said it's going to start accepting tourists. That's Yeah, because we're going to have things I like mean, SpaceX the def- and things now, The definition we? of tourist there is quite a specific thing. Yeah. It's not just like, where are we going? Are we going to get a cheap holiday a Palermo from Teletext Holidays or the moon the moon I said the moon they see I'm moon obsessed space station sorry yes ridiculous so Jack doesn't want to admit to his injury does he no. and, and Ted and Jack fight and he Ted knocks him unconscious yeah which, um, 
it's all on a space station, but they've got artificial gravity, haven't they? Yeah. He's gone for the good old something spins, therefore there's gravity. Yeah. I think he said something about that, about there being a something along those a lines. centrifugal kind of um, artificial gravity generation. So they've had a good old fight, knocks him unconscious. So he goes in a space taxi. So the, the rocket's about to launch. The rocket's the, docked. He's got it? to let people know, and rather than actually going and telling someone in power in the space station to pass a message along to say this guy is damaged I had to take sort of decisive action to stop him risking the whole mission he thinks what's better actually is I'll put a space helmet on with a darkened visor get into the space taxi (laughs) which will take me to my ship takes him to the ship which is very loud as well so he can't hear what he's saying because he is trying to tell the taxi driver isn't he but I find this book incredibly frustrating because most of the core of it is him trying to explain that he wasn't doing it just to be a stowaway on the ship to the moon. Everyone he meets is like, oh, you did this just because you want to get on the ship to the moon. And he's like, yeah. no, I did it so he didn't destroy the ship. To the- I don't want to be here. So this is it, isn't it? He, he ends up... Basically, this, the launch sequence has started. So they, he gets in the ship with them and they... Oh, I see, that's it, yeah. So we end up in the ship and locked into the situation and they're going to go, you're not... Jack, he's like, no, I'm Ted, and they just don't listen to him, do they? No, they do that thing that's really annoying in soap operas. If you ever watch them, where you know, you know, as the viewer, that that people have got the wrong end of the stick about someone, yeah, and they just can't tell them because none of the characters are willing to listen. And even if they do tell them, they go, well, well you would say that, wouldn't you? And it's so frustrating because it's the more reasonable <laughs> yeah. of the explanations as to why he's there, and they kind of go, well, we're just gonna have to bring him along. Yeah. It's too late now because we, we should. Do you want to tell us who the people are on the ship? So he meets then on the ship. He's met some of them uh, in the space station, but the ship is captained by George Meruller. I'm sorry, I'm pronouncing that surname. There's also Dan Forbes, the engineer. There's Doctor Phelps, MD. Doctor Gerhardt, the geologist. And is it? Oh, now we see. This is where I get confused. There's, who who's the person who hates him? Is it Forbes? Not the captain, because the captain is out of it for most of what happens yeah. next. It's his number two, isn't it? So I think it is Dan Forbes who is... Oh, yeah. It's all coming back to me. Yeah, it's Dan Forbes, I think, that hates him. I mean, they all, they're all not very happy with him, because in their heads, he's purposefully knocked out there. So Jack, being a kind of whippersnapper fresh out of Space Academy, was meant to be the guy who could pick up nearly any job. If something goes wrong... He's an all-rounder. He can do almost anything to keep the mission on track. Yeah. Whereas the rest of their specialisms. So they, they, they kind of relying on him. Luckily for them, they're kind of in two minds about Ted, even though they know that he's... they Well, they think that he's um, deliberately sabotaged Jack's mission to get his, to take his place. At least, well, we needed to bring him with us, and he's in the academy, so he may have some of the same skill set if we need him. Yeah. But he should probably be a prisoner. But I think it is... Forbes. Yeah, it's Forbes that just hates him and will have nothing to do with him. Yeah. But there is actually a sequence where they all literally turn their backs on, on Ted. It's like he's, he's looking around just for someone to help him and all the, all these these doctors who have no reason to doubt him, it's just like, they just turn their back. It feels so horrible and isolating, which is probably a good thing for a kid's book because at times you always feel like that when you're a kid. You feel like... But, 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 yeah, and yeah. the whole world sort of... It like is, going... It's massively frustrating. <laughs> and I don't know if it's frustrating because he's thought, I'm going to make it really frustrating. Or as a reader, it's just a frustrating, silly situation where everything seems to be happening too fast with the moon. The first ever mission to the moon is happening so fast that no one can go, well, hang on a second. One of our key... You know, what's going on here? Yeah. You just have to kind of... Everything seems to be happening in a bubble where there's no... The mission control is on the other end of the radio, but there's no... 
it, it all feels a bit like bitty yeah. for a moon for the first ever mission to the moon there's no one talking about it there's no journalists or anything there's yeah. no big deal it's just yeah we're gonna you know we thought this time we'd launch but now ted's on the ship and the, it's it's launched seriously nothing can go wrong now can it no except that it turns out there's a loose rivet in the ship darn it they should have checked really shouldn't they yeah and he doesn't he find it because he there's nothing to do when you're strapped in with the with the um rocket you have to have a rocket burst to kind of set you off on the, the trajectory yeah. to the moon and he's sitting there strapped on a couch and ted he's he's mulling over all this problem about the fact that they think he's a you know he's a he's a baddie and whatnot and he's counting the rivets, isn't he? And then he's like, oh, that one looks a bit... And then... And so the captain has to get up yeah. and try and... <laughs> and very technically, the captain's method for trying to fix this rivet in zero G is to get out a big hammer right. and try and hit it in. Because yeah. they haven't got any riveting gear on this ship that's made out of rivets. Yeah. He tries to hit this thing. Obviously, what happens is he gets thrust backwards by the force of his hit, of his attempted hammering of it in smashes his head against the bulkhead and is knocked unconscious. Hmm. Concussion. And ah. so the whole mission is then yeah. in jeopardy because the captain's the only one who can technically land the ship. He's the he's also the, the main pilot, isn't he? Obviously. Yeah. So um so who's going to land the ship? If only we had a, you know, someone, someone out of the academy who really knows the numbers because that's what Jack was going to do. He was going to be the backup if anything like this happened. But Dan Forbes is not happy about that. No. But having ascertained that Ted can probably land the ship on the moon, now nothing can go wrong, can it? <laughs> Except that he takes yeah. it in too fast. There's loads of numbers and calculations There's in this book. There's a huge thing where they have to get like they, they get they get a um, pen and paper out, don't they? And they have to go. They have to calculate. None of this is pre-programmed. They haven't really yeah. thought about computers and stuff. Um, they they have to uh, calculate exactly. It, it's got it right. I mean, this is what people who've watched The Marshall will understand if they read this book. Is it's it's got it right in the sense that that is what space real space travel is a, is like. It's all trajectories and degrees and and you know decimals of a degree will make the difference and about slingshotting and all these things. It's got the the language of it right, but I don't know if I mean actually I've read The Marsh in the book as well, and actually it's a really good read. Yeah. So there's something about letting the the reader know that you know this stuff but not having to keep and laying it on so thick they yeah. can keep it exciting in that world but not um so yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot of calculating there's a lot of calculating a lot of very fine detailed planning and he still crashes the ship yeah so they're now trapped on the moon so and this is another thing which is which is very accurate a bit like the martian again is that they they'd already sent an unmanned mission to the moon so that then when they got there they'd have supplies that right. had happened previously and they were meant to land near to that that um, cache of equipment yeah. so that they could refuel, set up a base and everything. But they've landed to in a completely different crater or something. Yeah. They? And so now they have to get from the crashed moon rocket to the supplies and back again with a woozy captain who decides to come along. No, so, no, the captain doesn't come along. No, Forbes goes. Oh, it's yeah. Forbes. It's because this is where it, it suddenly turns into a buddy film yeah. book, sorry. So the two people who hate each other most the, yeah. have to go on they this mission. Go. Yeah. Because the doctors are like, well, I'm not doing it. Yeah, the doctors are useless, basically. They brought a geologist 
and um, uh, the medical doctor obviously is quite handy, I guess. But they're useless as far as anything spacey goes because they've had they've literally been put on a spaceship and they don't really know how they work or what they do. Yeah. So they are no good. They're no good. So this is again um, very Martiany. They have to find a way to traverse a long distance um, whilst being chased by the sun. The sun. <laughs> Yeah. Which I think is probably quite right, isn't it? So the dark side of the moon is very, very cold. Yeah. And the light side of the moon is very, very, very hot. There's no atmosphere. So they have to try and make the journey completely during um, the cycle. There's a very specific window, isn't there? Yeah. But one of the great things about this is, and this just goes to show our knowledge about what was on the moon, despite all the science <laughs> that had been done at that point, the observations that had been made, the improvement in telescopes... Evan Hunter still posits that there is actually life on on the moon. Yeah. There is plant life. I on think the it's moon. an interesting little thing because it's about the most fictiony thing of it, really. Despite the fact that he might have some of his figures and his things wrong, the most of it is loosely about right. You know that you know we have to spend a lot of we have to burn a lot of fuel to get rockets to the moon, etc., and all these things about about the the conditions there. The most sciencey fictiony thing about this, apart from the fact that this is written before these things had really happened. Is that when they at one point they um, take shelter from a, a meteor shower, and there's a little crevasse, and inside it they find a little plant, a little bit, yeah. a little bit like in Wally, they find one little lone plant which they scoop up and stick in their pocket to prove that life can exist on the moon. And I think at the time, having not been there, that tells me that um, Evan Hunter was the kind of a man who was a bit more fanciful. He's like, well, why not? You know, we don't really know. The science. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest and to be fair to him, there's episodes of The Sky at Night, which is a seminal British programme about about the heavens, ostensibly, which was running for a, a, a... I presume it's still technically on. I think it's probably one of the longest running shows it's, in yeah, the world. Yeah, it's still on. There's, there's footage of people on that talking about Mars and, and speculating it could be covered in... In fields yeah. of this red stuff on Mars could be fields of particular plant and stuff like That's, that. It is very modest as well. I mean, they could yeah. you could have. This is why I was waiting for something in this book to be a bit more bonkers than a small green plant. Yeah, one in everything else. That's it, isn't it? As far as life, they find this one plant, and it's not really mentioned again, other than a bit later on when they, you know, it's um, it's a small. <laughs> it's a, it's a small concession to fiction, to the fiction part of science fiction, that there may be tiny little plants that grow in crevices on the moon. We know there probably, well, there definitely isn't really. Yeah. But, you know, it's hardly, it's hardly the maddest yet. thing you could have thought of. Not yet. The, I mean, the, the, then the main bit of jeopardy is this, this moving between the rocket and the supplies, isn't it? And yeah. getting back again in time for the people on the ship who don't have enough supplies on the ship to last because yeah. they also realise they're probably going to be on the moon for ages longer than they expected whilst someone, someone builds a rocket to send it up to get them. Yeah, it's the good old... Again, you really got to watch The Martian. Stop <laughs> talking about The Martian! No, it's so much like this. This is the thing, he, he was almost... It doesn't on... say in the back of The Martian, based on the no, novel. but it, it's so interesting how close it is, though, because... Yeah, they... does The Martian have a sequence where they sleep from 0735 to 1349 precisely? Possibly, yeah. Oh, right. It's yeah. very much like that, and they're in communication with the with Earth, and they're saying, we can send you a rocket up, but you're going to have to survive this long, unless you can get to the landing site of where the supplies landed. It, it, it's uncannily like The Martian. I should have mentioned this to you earlier. That would have been helpful. Yeah. I could have watched it in the yeah. interim. But it is uncannily like that in the sense that they can wait for the rocket, but it'll be too late. They need to think about their fuel supplies. They need to think about what they're going to eat. There is a cachet there. They need to get to it. It doesn't help that... So Ted is travelling with 
Dan, Dan who Forbes. hates him, and now has um, he gets um, zipped in the leg by a mini mini meteorite, doesn't he? They yeah. get caught in a meteorite shower, and it punctures his spacesuit, which they're able to fix up, but he then can't walk. Yeah. So he has to drag him on a kind of a on a kind of a gurney that he makes out of a sled. They're taking a sled with them, so it's yeah. a bit like um, it's also a bit kind of a. Um, like, what's his face well, like a like a polar expedition, like a polar expedition. Like... it's got that feel to it hasn't it he, he has to pull him along on his sled they have to get there and they do get there yeah <laughs> that's it and then they get back and then they then they manage to get it and because they've got the stuff they've got batteries to go into a kind of a tractory thing that they can go back on no they have to walk back I can't remember it's well that's the thing though, it isn't does it? go on it's it, not it, it's not very exciting yeah, and I think if I was a kid reading this in 1954, perhaps having read some of the others in this in the range and being a fan of the pulps and things like that, I'd be going, "Where's the terrifying moon monster? Or where's the, well, where's, the, the where is the robot?" Yeah, it, this is what we're saying about the cover, these lovely pulp covers of the kind of collections that these these were released in. Uh, promise so much more than this gives you. And this is probably because Evan Hunter, being Evan Hunter to become Ed McBain, is interested in real life. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's actually quite, well, not quite good, he's absolutely brilliant at reality, at portraying people in reality. Yeah. So what he's done here is what, he, is what he does with the 87th Precinct, is he has loaded it with facts and thoughts about the reality of the situation. Yeah. The problem is, the, the reality of the situation is, 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 is an entirely speculative one. Scientific basis for a speculative yeah. scenario, whereas the 87th Precinct, for instance, is a reality that's yeah. all around him, that's being lived day by day. He thinks the speculation is enough justification for the story in itself, and it isn't. And to bring it back to why The Martian is so popular, is because it's the same kind of framework. Are you framework. sponsored by The Martian? <laughs> I do um, I'm sponsored. No, um, I'm not sponsored by the Martian or Andy Weir, uh, who I think is the author. Bring it back to why that's was so popular, even though it follows the same kind of lines as this. Is that the character at the centre of the Martian is very charismatic, and he's on his own, and he has to deal with this, and he's got that kind of um, a Robinson Crusoe type of. He's yeah. got that um, um, film, a Castaway feel to it as well. Yeah. This hasn't. It's also got this gnawing annoyance of kind of Ted hates him. And their journey to get the fuel and back, and to get to the landing site and back, so they'll all live. They start to see, get. He starts to warm to him because they. Dan hates him. Not- Dan, Dan, sorry, Dan hates Ted. Dan, but by the end of the journey, Dan doesn't hate Ted. They're good mates, and because yeah. they're good mates, he finally goes, "What really happened?" Yeah, and they Perhaps finally I should give yeah. you a chance to uh, explain. And they finally let him tell him his side of the story, and he does, and everyone's like, oh, well, you're a hero, you're not actually a bad at all. And don't they get a message from the space station eventually that comes through to their ship to say, we've got Jack here, and by the way, he's told us what happened, and um, he's really sorry, and he should all be ha- happy now, Ted's a hero. Yeah. There you go, <laughs> kind of thing, and it kind of fizzles out a bit, as kind of... That's it, isn't it? They didn't go straight to sleep. They sat around talking for a long time, planning everything that they would do, planning every move now that their time on the moon was unlimited. So we need to sum it up, really. it's I would recommend people read it, and, and it would probably be quite an exciting book to read as a kid. And I reckon it would probably have made a very good TV serial, like yeah. or like an episode <laughs> of TV. Yeah. And... They didn't need to work on the characters. They needed to be more than just some doctors who ask a lot of questions about space travel. Yeah. And everyone hating him. That was... And him being a bit of a... But we're big fans of Doctor Who, and there's actually a lot of episodes of Doctor Who, even through to the modern era, where there are characters in it whose only role is to say, why? What's that? Why are we doing that? 
why don't we do that? And then, 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 then. Yeah. Stuff like that. So we need to sum it up and we need to basically come up with a unit of measurement by which oh, we can goodness. rate it via the Kenneth technology that we have. So, um, so what's moons? our... Moons? No, moons. You can't rate it by moons. No. I know there's more than one moon, not on Earth. Or on Earth. Around Earth. Feeding tubes. Feeding tubes. There's so many oh, they tubes have, in have, Yeah, there's a lot about... God, I've got the whole scene where... Um, his feeding tube freezes. There is that. We've glossed oh, over the yeah. feeding tube. I mean, he does try to insert this drama. I know we're, we're summing up, but in its defence, he, does, he doesn't He does just say, then they walked a bit, and then they walked a bit. There's lots of little punctuated bits of drama, which is yeah. what, again, people from the Martian would, oh. would understand that it's punctuated by challenges that have to be overcome by creative thinking and scientific thinking. But it's just not enough, really. Um, yeah, they have feeding tubes... Batteries, fuel. I'm trying to think of any unit of measurement that would uh, be suitable. Fuel tanks, fuel cells, fuel, fuel cells. cells. There we go. How many? That's what we're going to rate it on. We'll rate it on fuel cells. How many fuel cells would you give rocket to Luna? Tell me now, Gary Abbott. Are we talking out of a hundred? Out of a hundred rocket cells, fuel uh, cells. I can't remember. I mean, I gave um, Danger Dinosaurs something in the '60s. I think I can't remember exactly. Danger Dinosaurs, by comparison, is amazing. Yeah. Uh, despite some of its its flawed premise, it's an interesting fun book to read. It's, because it's less grounded in reality. Yeah, it's, it's more got fun. dinosaurs and time travel in it. It's science fiction, and I'm I'm promised science fiction. I get fiction as well as science. With this one, it is kind of like it's it's science <laughs> fiction. <laughs> so I'm going to say I'm going to give it forty five. Forty five fuel cells. I'm with you on on that. It's it is not as good as Danger Dinosaurs. It's a frustrating read as an adult, mm. certainly, particularly because well, it, it does make me think back to that being a kid and being frustrated when things don't when everything seems like such an injustice. Mm. But then I wasn't going to the moon, as we've ascertained. I broke my collarbone, therefore I wasn't allowed to go to the moon in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. And that's the only thing that stopped yeah. you, isn't it? <laughs> Compared to a lot of those sorts of stories, I don't know, I've just read some Ray Bradbury short stories, which feature quite a lot of going to Mars. But that, And that's even more parochial. That's a bit like, when we get to Mars, we're going to build a little village, and it'll be nice. Yeah. I think you either do one or the other. I think I think because he's tried to go down the factual side of it, yeah. you know, he's tried to make it like this could really happen, but he hasn't... It doesn't matter, really... It, it really does depend on the characters and they really are kind of very two-dimensional and not very interesting. Yeah. And it doesn't help, therefore, that the actual, the moon isn't a very interesting place. But yeah, we, once you actually get there. We're coming at it from people who know that we went to the moon and know that although that was very exciting and it is exciting, we should all be very proud of it and it should, you know, it is the moon. What we found when we got there was quite a barren landscape which may have some locked up ice and things in it which could be very interesting but we never went back really in manned we didn't do we many, did we did we about, went, something like six missions on the moon it, and that's it yeah we haven't we haven't carried on going there we haven't there's talk of getting it as a moon base but it never really has emerged yet so it isn't as interesting to us but it must have been i i, I guess i'm trying to temper your score because i've already scored it low there's that side of it that well it, i'm gonna score it 40 oh okay so you've gone even lower <laughs> yeah so that didn't help at all <laughs> which gives us a grand total 
and I round up with Kenneth. That's how his mechanisms work at 43. If you did that on a moon mission, you'd end up in the wrong <laughs> crater, yep. just like Ted and, and the crew. So there we go. 43 fuel cells is our rating for Rocket to Luna. So that's the second of the three juvenile fiction, science fiction stories. So what have we got in store for the third one, Paul? Because if I, don't, if I can do that, I didn't even know there was a third one. I thought this was it. It's called Find the Feathered Serpent. And so we'll look into that. And perhaps you can return again for that. Hopefully there'll be more to talk about <laughs> Well, yeah. with it, if you know what I mean. So until the next podcast and the next book, which is Sadie When She Died, I'm going to say, fare thee well. So fare thee well. Cheerio. Cheerio.